some good rock and roll coming up for you now. The guys from Kiss have arrived. They snuck in the back door. You spend your whole life doing the first few albums, and then suddenly everybody needs your attention. Erica M. The invention of the VJ. A flashback on the career that made them who they are today. On this episode. When I became president of Sony Music Canada, um, Sean Fanning was just giving birth to Napster, which was a, a disruptive little Dickens. After recording 21 records, is there really anything new for you guys to say? This is Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ. Now, here's Erica M. Hi there, I'm Erica M. And thank you so much for tuning into what I'm guessing is going to be a pretty important episode of my Reinvention of the VJ podcast. You want to talk reinvention? My guest today went from touring with rock bands to running the entire Much Music operation. She went from deciding which videos would get airplay on Much to becoming president of Sony Music Canada. And she went from running a national video network to leading CBC Canada's national radio network. My guest today is the undeniably fabulous Denise Donlin, who is one of Canada's most respected women in broadcasting and the music industry. Oh yeah, wait, I forgot about social justice. She's pretty impressive in that world as well. So yeah, I'm looking forward to my conversation with Denise Donlin today. But before we jump into our interview, if this is your first time tuning into my podcast, I just want to give you a little bit of background. Reinvention of the VJ is my unscripted, up-close, and personal conversations with the eclectic and much-loved hosts you may have grown up watching on Much Music. While our personalities and approaches were different, to say the least, there is one thing that we do all have in common. Each of us played a small part, actually in Denise's case, a pretty large part, in Canada's most influential pop culture platform. And then we left at different times, for different reasons, each of us set off on our next adventures. And it's that story of what happens after much, the reinvention, the resilience, the luck, the struggle, and the perspective. That's the stuff that really intrigues me. I think that this conversation will probably be a bit of a trip down memory lane for you. Nothing wrong with nostalgia. But I'm also hoping that you find some interesting tidbits or insights into what it takes to get what you want in life, to reinvent. Maybe you're dealing with tough times. Maybe this show will help. Maybe it will help you redefine what success is. And hopefully it's going to give you some ideas to inspire you to look at your life a little differently. As for me, this is definitely a passion project for me. For the last 14 years, I've been running one of Canada's uh, I would call most influential mom communities, as well as an agency that connects moms with brands. I love what I do, but hello, it's 14 years. <laughs> it's been a long time. So I'm also hoping that this show will give me some inspiration and ideas for when I decide it's time for my next chapter in life. And now, Let's start this chapter with my wonderful guest, uh, the one and only Denise Donlin. Hello, Denise. Hi, Erica. So great to see you. I'm. It's so interesting that you're thinking about reinvention because I've just been 
you know, marveling at what you've done after much music with the whole Yummy Mommy Club. And like every time I turn around, you're, you know, you've got, you're talking to interesting people, you're hosting interesting events. Um, I just, can I just applaud you from here? Let's do that. Thanks, well Denise. Done. Thanks. And, you know, <laughs> it's the Mutual Admiration Society here because this show would not, or this episode or this series would not be complete if you were not one of the earliest guests anyway, because this is, you really have been such a huge part of the evolution of much music and the music business in Canada. And I, I want to start the show off by could embarrass you, but I think it's important uh, to tout all of your, um, successes. Um, so just bear with me as I read some of these things off. Okay. Denise Donlan was inducted in the Canadian Broadcasters Hall of Fame. She was named one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women. She was given the Rosalie Trailblazer Award at the Canadian Music Week celebrations, uh, named Canadian Music Week's Broadcast Executive of the Year three times, received Peter Zowski's Literacy Award of Barrett, named Woman of the Year from Canadian Women in Communications, uh, won two Gemini Awards, received the very prestigious Walt Grealis Special Achievement Award, and you are a member of the Order of Canada. Thank you, Erica. Yeah, those, as you were listing them off, I was remembering, oh, that was a fun night. Oh, that was a scary speech. Oh, that <laughs> But Denise, what back. Which, mm. which one of those amazing awards um, is the most meaningful for you and why? Well, it has to be the Order of Canada. You know, it was, um, I was, how old was I? It was 2004. Um it was meaningful for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which was that Sony Music Canada was about to merge with BMG and um, they did not choose me as the president for reasons we may go into. Um, but in many ways it was a phew, cause I really couldn't take care of my artists anymore. Cause this merger was really, um, you know, coming down the track anyway. So I got home and I was feeling pretty bummed, um, even though I knew it was an opportunity for great reinvention and on the other hand, very grateful as well. And I went to Ottawa and I was leading the charge for some copyright revision and came back from that with all the politicians having met, you know, wanting the photo op, but really, you know, of course we'll help you. Not really, it was happening. And uh, I was really bummed out. So I came home and there was this letter um, and I opened it up and they said that I was going to receive the Order of Canada. And I just burst into tears because at that moment in my life, that little snowflake meant everything. It meant that I should keep pushing rocks up hills uh, that, you know, that your contributions um, are sometimes acknowledged. And, you know, if, if you're ever at an Order of Canada ceremony and you see people being awarded, um, and then we all sing uh, "O Canada" at the end of it. You, 
you will never, you know, bust your chest with pride uh, more um, than when you hear O Canada and you sing O Canada in that moment. It really is quite uh, magnificent. And well-deserved. Denise, I feel like you and I have some things in common. One of them is I have a feeling that you were, like me, really driven from a very young age. When I was 16 or 17, I decided I was going to be in the music business and I would you know, work at record stores and radio stations and I DJed in clubs and I managed bands and you know, I, was, I was on a path. And I think that that was the same scenario for you. Tell me about Denise, who was in her teens and early 20s. <laughs> well, I was doing similar things to that. I was, um, you know, head of a dance committee in high school. And <laughs> I went to the University of Waterloo in environmental studies and um, chemistry, which is, of course, leads you directly into the music business. Um, but I started booking bands there for the Federation of Students. And, you know, that was after doing my work, my terrible John Prine, Joni Mitchell impersonations on my guitar in the grad club. And I learned pretty quick that I should be behind the scenes, not on the stage myself. And yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting time because I think I was driven really to learn. You know, I had a pretty harsh upbringing. Um, my dad, who is dearly departed uh, with three brothers, he, um, he was harsh. He was a detective sergeant and... Um, you know, my mom was really encouraging, but I think I had something to prove. It was just like, you know what? I'm not going to be all those things you said about me. Um, and the more I learn and the more I can uh, do, maybe I'll, I'm just, a, I'm pathetic. I'm just a girl looking for her dad's approval at the end of the day, right? And so ending up in, uh, in rock and roll, I mean, it was it was an interesting course because I moved to Vancouver um, and tried to learn everything I could about the music business. And before you knew it, I was, you know, on the road with White Snake on the slided in tour 84 and often being in a situation where the you're the only woman in the room, you know, um, and that takes some cojones, I think, to kind of go, you know what? tough. I'm just going to power my way through and, and see what I can learn and see what I can do and not take gender as a barrier. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about how and if you experience sort of, you know, being the girl in the room, because when I was working in the music business, for the most part, I remember not experiencing discrimination. And that's probably because I was blind to it. I just got to do the jobs that I wanted to do. And I wasn't seeing anything other than that. I just got to be the DJ in the bar. I got to work at the radio station. So tell me about what it was like for you being on the road with these sexist pigs um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and how you dealt with it. 
Well, I think it's so true that you are blind to it, right? You you just, I mean, I can remember, you know, incident after incident now when I'm thinking, you know, because yeah. of the gender bias specificity. And I'm like, yeah, I can remember, you know, I was the tour manager and they were like, get me a coffee, honey. And I mean, it wasn't the first time I've been asked to get a coffee when you're trying to convince them that you're actually in charge of the whole show. Um but yeah, I was blind to it. Um, I didn't think about it as a gender thing. I just thought about it as, you know, they're assholes and bullies. And, um, you know, I'm going to succeed despite it. I mean, at that time in the music business, and this was the late 70s and the early 80s, you know, the managers, and they were mostly male managers, um, were were blustering, angry, bully. They got their way by by yelling and swearing and that everybody, you know, just, it was just the way the business was. And on one hand, I was sort of, you know, thanking my dad because he was able to sort of, you know, get into those rolling rages, which would leave me cold I would just stand my ground and push back and you know after you're yelled at nose to nose with popping veins and spittle coming at you um, you kind of learn to stand your ground at the end of the day so on one hand it was a pretty tough upbringing but on the other hand he really did give me some survival tools that came in quite handy (laughs) what what did he think of you being in the in the music business, I would think being a policeman, he may not have been too thrilled with it. Well, there were times, I mean, even at university, you know, I'd come home and, uh, you know, the I'd be talking about, we should be legalizing marijuana. So you, you have to imagine that there were very few conversations that we could have aside from the weather that wouldn't lead into, you know, pretty fierce argument. But you know what? I know he was really proud of me and he was kind of one of those people with a, you know, a very um, tough, crunchy exterior, but a, a warm, gooey inside. And it was partly in the nature of his work that that made him like that. Um, but I know he loved me and um, and I think he was just happy that I was out there earning a living, really. Did he live to see you receive the Order of Canada? No. No, he died high at a brain aneurysm when he was in his late 50s. So a number of the accolades uh, that I received, he, he did, did not. Wow. Yeah, just so there's, you know, legend has it that you were road managing head pins and then you ended up on Much Music. But, you know, there's a big chunk of story that's left out of that. You don't go just from being a road manager to having an on-camera job at the nation's music station. So, you know, this is so exciting for me because I've known you for so long, but I don't know these stories. Like, how did you actually get into much music and on camera? Did, did someone meet you backstage? Did you bump into John Martin at a bar? Like, what happened? Yeah, yeah I did uh, yeah, all of that. So w- much music was you know, the nation's music station, but it was really coming out of downtown Toronto on Queen Street uh, East at that time. And so it was important for the station to make sure that they were reflecting, you know, the country that they, they served in a sense. So John used to send cameras 
um, maybe just camera one at a time, you know, across that Mike and Mike went on the road. Uh, we had much, uh, we had cameras going out to, to cover important things or important bands. And so whenever he came to Vancouver, I wanted to make sure because I was working for bands out there, Doug and the Slugs and Trooper and Headpins, etc. I wanted my acts on Much Music's air. So I made it my business that when Much Music was in town, that I was in touch and sort of promoting my acts. And so John and I developed a bit of a friendship. And um, when Jeannie Becker, who was doing a rock flash at the time, and the new music went on to fashion television. He needs somebody to do rock flash. Um, I was coming, I was thinking about moving back to uh, Toronto um, and for a couple of reasons. My parents were actually getting a divorce and I wanted to be close to them. Um, I could not find a boyfriend in Vancouver. There were just, <laughs> it wasn't happening. It was <laughs> no action there. Lonely. <laughs> No, the guys I knew actually were, um, you know, the Chilliwack and uh, Headpins and Loverboy. And they were all guys who were far more proficient with the blow dryer than I was ever going to be. So, Oh, I um, thought you were going to use some other word than blow. I was like, don't say it, Denise. (laughs) Don't say it. No, and of course, it wasn't really my scene. In a lot of ways, um, you know, I came back to save my liver. Um, as I mentioned, I'd just been on the road with White Snake and Quiet Ride and Kiss. And, you know, those were hard drinking, mm-hmm. uh, druggy days. Um, and so when John offered me the job at, uh, at Much Music, I thought, you know what? I really didn't think I could be an on-air personality. It was the time, you know, Don Henley's song, uh, Dirty Laundry was on the air and they were talking about, you know, the bubble headed bleach blonde uh, talking about the news. And I was six foot one with a lisp and felt very ungainly and totally unattractive. Um, but the next thing you knew, I was on much music, you know, saying coming up, we've got with, you know, and they throw you on air. You remember? Oh, yes. It's not like anyone's showing you how to do it or what to do or or anything. You're just suddenly going, John's, you know, saying, you'll figure it out. Go. The next thing you know, there's a camera there and the nation's <laughs> watching you. And um, I mean, God, you look back at those early days and, it, you know, it's shocking how bad I was. I remember, and I don't know if you remember this, but I used to come up to you and say, Denise, you're pulling your ear all the time. That was your nervous <laughs> habit when you first started. But nobody was, there was no one to coach you. There, you know, yeah. really, they just let you do your thing. And I thought, you know, girl power, you need to, you know, it's like the woman whose who's, um, clothing tag is sticking out. And in order to be yeah. a good girlfriend, you need to say, you know, your clothing tag is sticking out. I did that for wow. you because I thought, why is no one helping Denise, now I'd only been on the air for like six months or so at that point. So it's not like I was, you know, Miss On-Air personality, but um, there- No, you knew what you were doing. And I remember how kind you were. I remember that you would, you never competed with me for air like other VJs might have, right? You know, walk over, sit on the desk. So what's going on? And it wouldn't, and sometimes it didn't matter what I said. They always had another story, right, to do. But you never did that. You were very, 
um, welcoming. And uh, yeah, as you said, there's a yeah, <laughs> some nervous ticks. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh, we all we all had them, and um, and then you you learn, you get better, you stuck with it, and you improved. I I was curious about. Um, the art of interviewing. I know that you interviewed now probably around a thousand uh, different mm-hmm. sort of well-known people. How did, as you improved, how did your style of interviewing change? Well, I started to understand that it was a craft, you know, and I really started to understand that. Um, and that was one of the things that I loved about Much Music is it was, yeah, we had stars on the air, but we were also really interested in being the vehicle to help the visitor who's coming in, uh, help them shine as well. It wasn't, you know, gotcha journalism where we were trying to, um, you know, catch people in in terrible modes. It was it was we we felt like we were we were partners with the with the mm-hmm. stars in the in the room. Um, and on the scene and that we were kind of all in this together but I learned so I was on the after I went from Rock Flash I went to the new music and the new music you know it wasn't live um, and we had an opportunity to really research so I would go home with you know the files that were (laughs) it was before the interweb we it was the file you'd open it up and there's like little tiny bits of things would fall out like newspaper clippings (laughs) Um, and, and you'd go across the street, the- go across the street to the bookstore and buy the latest magazines that they, that much didn't have and schlep those exactly. home with you. Yep. Yep. And uh, and try and figure it out. And I used to listen to the record till I knew it backwards and forwards. I studied lyrics. I studied liner notes. Um, and then, you know, I would paste the interview in my head and I would you know, really focus on what's your opening question, because that it, you know, it establishes your rapport or not right away. Um, If you wanted to get into some sticky territory, you know, you can't just, you know, go right out. Well, why did you murder your wife on that April day? You know, you have to actually, you know, be a little bit psychologically uh, beguiling to be able to get uh, where you want to know. So it was do your homework, uh, think about it as an art form, as a, as a craft, um, pace it properly, um, and be willing to, uh, you know, forget your questions and have a conversation. So I'd write all my little questions down on a three by five note card. And then when I actually sat down, I'd stick the cards under my leg and then have a conversation. And so the most important thing I learned was how to listen. Um, and if you listened, uh, you could likely take them um, on an interesting journey into maybe unique places. Can you be over-researched? Um, I don't think so. I think you can be overly nervous, right? Where you're daunted by the person who's in front of you because you think they're smarter or more accomplished or standoffish or they just had a bad day when they got up this morning. Mm. Because you have to remember, as you know so well, an interview is an artificial construct, right? They're there because they're selling a record or promoting a book or whatever they're doing. You're the 
you're trying to literally sell ads off their back, right? If you have a big star. So, and you're hoping that they will tell you things that they perhaps never even told their most intimate confidant, um, cause you can get into some pretty intimate territory. So, you know, there's a lot of um, acceptance of rules by the time you're actually sitting across from, from somebody um, on two chairs with a camera rolling. So trying to sort of claw back that artifice and the construct so that you can be two people having a human conversation is really the goal. And would you say that a good interview always equals good television? Mm -mm. No, I wouldn't. Um, you know, especially back in those days, because, you know, you could get fired over a jump cut, right? It was like, nobody jump cut. You'd sit there after the interview and you you practice and do your re-asks and do your noddies so that you could edit the conversation into a way that was either in and around music or a video or would make it more palatable for the audience. Because there are some interviews, um, some stars who can't say hello in under 20 minutes. They're really long-winded, uh, Don Henley. They, um, <laughs> the idea, Mark Knopfler was always a um, particularly challenging interview. Um, they don't wanna play the game. What do you mean they don't wanna play the game? Well, they don't want to, they don't even wanna be there. You know, because they, the record company or their management has said, you know, we need you to go out and do five days of international press and people from around the world will fly in and sit in front of you and talk to you. And it's pretty boring at the end of the day when you're being asked the same questions all the time. Um, so part of the interviewer's job is knowing the situation. If you're going into one of those um, situations where they're sitting there for days on end yeah. is, you know, how am I going to engage them in, in a new way, in an honest way? So, yeah, in the old days, um, you know, we would let a conversation, and we had that latitude on, on the new music anyway, um, play out as a long form, and we would never cut an interview up the way they do now kids these days they you know they they just they take the most salacious part and they take it out of context and they they try it's more gotcha journalism which is not mm. what we were doing we were actually really trying to understand you know why did sting think that way or you know why did you know prince what made him tick that sort of thing we were genuinely interested uh in them as um as artists have you ever been starstruck? <laughs> um, I've been really nervous. I was nervous interviewing Joni Mitchell because I had just such a tremendous admiration and respect and love for her. Um, she's also somebody who takes a long time to answer a question if she's into it. She's you know, Tom Waits was one of those where, you know, interviewing him was like watching a butterfly fly, like he'd be talking and then he'd be talking and then he'd stop and then he'd start talking again. Right? And, the, and finally, the, you know, the butterfly would land and you'd be like, OK, where was I? All right. You know, so not starstruck. As long as I did my homework, I wasn't starstruck. But you do get nervous. Um, and, you know, it's also it's really interesting. Sometimes you come up from an interview thinking 
you know, I like that person a lot better by, by just knowing their music than I do now. <laughs> and sometimes, it, you know, the opposite will happen. You know, you didn't love their music, but you met the person and now it's like, yeah, I'm going to give that record, you know, a number more spins. I'm glad that you brought that up. I was thinking about interviews where you go in with uh, actually kind of pissed that you got to interview them because you really don't like their music. And then you sit across from them and they are entirely different than who you thought. For In my case, Blackie Lawless. I oh, did yeah. not want to interview this guy with the long black hair who, I don't even know, I don't even remember what the names of his songs are like, fuck, like a beast or those kinds of yeah, horrific, yeah, yeah, I did not yeah. want to, but, you know, I was hosting on the day that he was coming in and I got stuck with interviewing him. It turns out he was one of my favorite interviews of all time. He was huh. not, not like... I expected him to be. He was highly educated. He was into sports. He was um, a gentleman. So weird. So has that Mm -hmm. happened to you where you thought someone would just be the worst or the best? I'd like to stick Um, actually with the best where you you weren't into their music. And then you talk to them and you go, you're an amazing person. Hmm. See, I think that would have happened less to me than to you, because, you know, uh, on the new music, um, if I didn't want to interview Blackie Lawless, I wouldn't interview Blackie Lawless. <laughs> right? I didn't have to. Um, and because between Laurie and I, um, you know, Laurie had different tastes than me. So artists I weren't particularly interested in, she would, you know, take those and then I would take other one, other ones. So I didn't, unlike uh, much music, and by the time I got there, I was I was the director of programming and then the vice president general manager. So I didn't have to get into that situation like you did. Um, also, though, we did try to make sure that we were matching people who, you know, might get along. Um, but I know what you mean when uh, suddenly it's usually work the other way around for me, like Mick Hucknell from Simply Red. I was in love with that record, the, the picture book record. And when then when I met him, he was such a, excuse me, dick um, that I've never been able to listen to that record again. That, oh, totally. <laughs> so, that, that definitely it's happens. It's like they say, never meet your heroes. Those are that that's kind of what we're uh, alluding to. Okay, so yeah. you, unlike me, you sort of rose up into more of a managerial position at much being the director of music programming. So I never was invited into the music meeting, Denise. The music yeah. meeting being where key people, uh, producers at much and a few on-air people met every week and all the new videos were played and you guys would, I think, vote on if yeah. these if these videos should go into rotation and what level of rotation they should go into. And basically you were making or breaking bands careers in that little private room. Okay, what happened in the room? Tell me, Denise, what was going on there? Well, the room was often very feisty because it got to the point of much music where we were so big and impactful 
Um, and everybody was making music videos, especially in the, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, that we would be getting over 100 videos every week. And we could put maybe two or three into a meaningful rotation. So light, medium, heavy rotation. Um, other videos would be de delegated to specialty shows like The Wedge or Rap City or... Um, Outlaws and Heroes. Outlaws and Heroes. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and we would see. So it, the, the video either had to be brilliant right from the top or there had to be a thirst that we knew from the audience to want to see the latest video from the Red Hot Chili Peppers or whoever it was. Um, but yeah, those meetings could get very fraught. Um, and sometimes we change our minds. Uh, and sometimes we just plucked a video from like Moist, for example, their first video, black and white video with David Usher singing with a light bulb hanging down to that video push. We put it into Meaningful Rotation right out of the box, a Canadian um, artist, just because we saw it. It's like, this is undeniable. So sometimes we sort of followed a little bit because MTV often would get the videos a week before us, which made us insane. Um, and then sometimes we would uh, just out of the, you know, sheer patriotism, um, help as many Canadian bands, uh, give them a leg up as we could. That was the fun part. That's what, because they were our friends, right? Um, even some of the international acts. I mean, you interviewed Crowded House, I think, a number of times. We used to Love say, them. oh, it's Wednesday, but my, where's Crowded House? Why aren't they here today? <laughs> I love those guys. Love yeah. them. The opposite yeah. of uh, Simply Red, for example. Exactly right. And they the understood. They understood yeah. the game. Uh, obviously, their music was fantastic. We would have probably played yeah. it anyway, but yeah. they they made us fall in love with them. So they were they always in high road. We would do anything for them. That's right. Very I smart. Think partly it was too. They understood because they were New Zealanders, but lived in Australia at that point. And Canada, like um, Australia, small geography, big population, spent a lot of time in the van, you know, going from gig to gig and really honing your craft and really. So by the time you actually got to the point where you got a deal or, or a video, uh, you knew what you were doing. So when you got put up to bat to play live, you could actually, you know, nail that. Um, so there was a big affinity with Australian um, and Canadian bands. Yeah, in excess and, uh, as well. Mm -hmm, for yeah, sure. Lots of connection. Sure. So you yeah. continued to rise up the ranks and you ended up becoming the head of Much Music, general manager of Much Music. Were you my boss or had I left already? Do you remember? I was trying to remember. You were still there, but we didn't overlap for very long. Right. Um, I remember your Red Hot Chili Peppers interview. Oh, God, Denise. Did I ever hate them? Uh, with the microphone on the nipples. <laughs> God. <laughs> um, yeah, you were, you were on your way. Um, and we were on our way, you know, to launching new stations because much music was full. We were full. And, you know, there's 100 videos a week coming in and they needed a place to go. So launching much more music. And what we've done at that point is, you know, part of the reason why they offered me the job as director of music programming at Much Music was because we were doing a lot of very issue oriented social justice material 
uh, at the new music, you know? So we would be, what really got me excited was not interview the stars. Um, and yeah, that got me excited, but, but was making a contribution because videos were, you know, dangerous, uh, sometimes violent, certainly often misogynist, um, uh, and often art, right? They were, um, it was amazing what kind of stories and messages um, and visuals couldn't be told. You know, on one hand, we were showing Canada Boy George for the first time. And, you know, kids in Medicine Hat and Nick Hallowit were, were understanding that there were people like them who could be, um, you know, successful in the world and be proud of who they were. So at The New Music, we were very interested in exploring those themes. Um, taking artists to task uh, if we didn't like misogynist lyrics or thought they were, you know, violent or whatever. So those one-hour specials were really what was making me happy. Um, and so I was able um, at the helm of Much Music to bring in a, a lot of uh, conscious media literacy, um, social justice programming. And that's what that's what made me happy. That's what made me really feel like I was part I, of, the, of this culture that was so important in terms of young minds and aesthetics and um, a feeling of empowerment for the audience. I was curious, I know that you brought all that media literacy and uh, social justice to much music in a more profound way than uh, the previous bosses did. Um, for you personally, was the social justice component something where you had an aha moment or has that been a part of your life, like a gradual awakening? Oh, that's interesting. I, th I think it was a gradual awakening. I think, you know, learning some journalistic chops at the new music, because I was not trained as a journalist by any stretch, um, and to be really kind of aware of what was going around in the world. And at that time in the eighties and nineties, you know, pop culture was having a very big impact on who we were as a society, right? We were getting, we were urging young people to vote. We were trying to explain what the issues were. We were, you know, talking about uh, gender imbalance and racial injustice. And the videos were speaking to those issues. Uh, because the artists were engaged in those issues. There were, there were big events happening around the world, like, you know, the Amnesty International Conspiracy of Hope Tour. There was Live Aid uh, because of starvation in Africa. There was free Nelson Mandela events. There were all of those things that were going on. And it was exciting for Much Music to be, to be part of those. It was exciting for me as a, you know, nascent journalist uh, to be talking um, to artists about something other than, you know, who are you wearing and how, how's the tour going, right? It was just like, yeah, let's use our powers for good here. If we have a platform, um, you know, let's, let's explore with the audience what these things mean. Yeah, and I think that you, um, you leveled much music up. It became more than what it was. Like, I, I kind of call it much 2.0. At that point, I already had, had been gone, and you were curating a new group of hosts um, 
to tell maybe different stories or approach much music differently. And I was wondering, you know, you were talking about how you interview uh, and curate interviews and you put a lot of thought into them. How do you interview a potential employee or in this case, host for much music in a way that is different than how you would interview an artist? Well, um, it was a big deal to be an on-air personality at Much Music, as you know very well. Um, so you have to be pretty deft in your choices because, first of all, it's not an easy gig. It looks kind of glamorous, but remember at Much Music, you know, we didn't own a teleprompter. We did, like you were just like thrown on the air like everybody else. Um, and zany things happened and, you know, things malfunctioned, and, <laughs> you know, you, so you had to be somebody who was um, capable. Um, and I always, I always thought that it was a very, it was a privileged position to have. So people who wanted to be VJs, we had the VJ, you know, temp, be a temp for a day competition. And then that was one way of exploring, uh, you know, what the talent was out there. Um, we wanted to cast it like the human rainbow so that it reflected the community to which we broadcast. So we had to make sure that we were, you know, multiracial and, and multicultural. And um, I did not have an LGBTQ on-air person that I, that, that I, that I knew of uh, at the <laughs> right. time, um, because people had to be self-identifying. So uh, when I would sit with a VJ, a potential VJ, I would literally say, why do you want to be a VJ? And if they would say, because I want to be famous, I would say, not good enough, there's the door. Um, well, obviously, yeah, that is, that is in fact, probably the worst answer you could give because at much music, you yeah. did. Mm -hmm. Wow. All, all the time. Because it was. All right. So if anybody is listening right now and you want to be a VJ, do not do it because you want to be famous. <laughs> no, it's 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 kind of ridiculous. You know, there are on air personalities that, you know, that stand in front of a teleprompter and spend hours in hair and makeup. And, and you know, they're a, they're a presenting person, but it's pretty hollow and, and fame is very fleeting, I would add. So, you know, we needed people who were curious that's you cannot teach curiosity you have to be curious you have to be i think um willing to put to it's the slings and arrows right it doesn't matter what you say or do someone's gonna hate you be mad at you you know and they're gonna let you know so you have to have I think it's it's kind of like an artist, like you have to have a very porous skin to be able to feel the muse and be empathetic in the first place. But you also have to have reptilian skin to be able to handle what Joni would call the star making machinery, right? Because it's awful out there. So for me, it was about, you know, casting the station uh, to reflect the community that we broadcast to, and also to ensure that the people who were on air um, were, had integrity, um, would be able to think on their feet, were curious, um, and certainly had some ego, but didn't lead with their ego. Because um, I did believe that it was a place where we could help the stars that visited us to shine. Um, and take them on if they if they deserved it. 
Um, so yeah, there was a lot of quality components. So if you were to go sort of look backwards and because we can, we can have perspective on this. There have been a lot of on-air people, at least I'm talking really the people until you left from the day that we started until you left. Mm -hmm. What do you think most of the on-air people at much had in common? Hmm. If anything. Yeah, I think, I think it's curiosity. Um, I think it, it, there's a definite zest for life, right? You had to really want to, you know, you're going to be skiing while you interview this artist backwards through a field of trees. <laughs> you know, we put people in very insane situations sometimes. Um, but I, I think that they were all, they were real people who are comfortable in their own skin. Ultimately, it's a it's a very tough gig, but I think they were they were multidimensional. So when you interview somebody like you know Master T, um, who was so talented on so many levels and very thoughtful, um, he really opened my eyes in terms of you know systematic um, unconscious bias, for example. Um, George Strombolopoulos, when he first came in, you know, he was, he had covers and piercings and, you know, he was wearing a, a crazy leather jacket and we talked mostly about his snake, um, for the first, but he was w one of those people that the more I talked to him, he was like peeling an onion. There was just more and more and more to him. And when I asked him, so why do you want to be a VJ? He said, well, I'm not sure I do. I was like, now I really want to. And I remember sending his tape up to Moses because Moses had to approve all my on-air hires. And um, Moses was furious. He, he sent me a note back down and said, why do you always hire the ugly people with piercings? <laughs> Which was too bad because I had already hired George. <laughs> anyway, he, George was, uh, he's a journalist um, in disguise. He was, you know, one of those people you could send to you know, political um, conventions as easily as to backstage at Woodstock. He was just a well-rounded, curious, thoughtful uh, young man. You mentioned Moses. We haven't spoken about him, and he really is the reason why you and I are talking today. Um, in your book and in some interviews, you talk about Moses and his ability to provoke and to ask you or tell you certain things that are sure to upset you mm -hmm. in order to see what you're made of and yeah. if you're worth him spending time or wasting time on you. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience for you? Yeah, it was, I mean, the first time I met him, John and Nancy had brought me to uh, Toronto. Um, they wanted to put me on air. As I mentioned, I was, I was not the most, you know, television friendly person you've ever seen. Um, and Moses did that. He was like, why, you know, he said, he said, what will you do when in three months, this doesn't work out? And so that was a, you know, an example of the button pushing, you know, he was convinced I was going to, I was going to fail at it. And um, what would I do then? I'd given up my job in Vancouver and I'd moved across the country and, and I just said, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. It's just, we're just going to, and I had no confidence at all. It was all bluster. 
of course. Um, but it did take me back. It was just, but John had warned me that he would, he would try to push my buttons, but you know, I, uh, whatever, you just have to do your best the best of your own ability, given the circumstances you're in, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, don't let the see you sweat. <laughs> True. Well, when I, I don't think you know this story, but when I first met Moses, I think I was probably 19 or 20. This is right before I was hired. And I had a lunch with him in Ottawa. He was going to a CRTC hearing and I wanted a job at City TV because I wanted to answer the phones for the new music. There were no separate phones for the new music. That's great. No, no, was, there was no much music right. at the time. Right. There was right. just the new music. And, yeah. you know, I was a rabid fan of the new music show because it was so cutting edge and I was into music at the time. So I wanted, I wanted to work there. And he said, well, what, what do you want to do? Now, remember I was, still in university, I was 19, maybe 20. And I said, I just want to do something creative. Hmm. And he looked at me with such disdain. And he said, every job at City TV is creative. I'm like, okay. He goes, you know what? You're just a little spoiled brat. And I, I looked at him and I stood up, not proud of this. And I told him to F off. Good for you. And I marched out of that restaurant, Denise. I would be proud of and that. And I marched, <laughs> I marched halfway home, hmm. halfway home. And then I said to myself, what gives him the right to speak to me like that? Denise, I marched back into the restaurant. He was half finished his lunch. And I looked at him and I said, if we're going to talk like professionals, then treat me like a professional. And you know what he said? Hmm. You're hired. Right. Good. Well, well done. Well <laughs> it's done. part of the backbone, though, that uh, I think a lot of people had who worked at Much Music. And I think it's also something that not just at Much Music, that's something that all of us, no matter what career we're in, have to face sort of the bullies or the bosses. Yeah. Yeah. When, you, when you were hired at Sony... How did that, first of all, why did you leave much? Why did you leave much, Denise? <laughs> well, I'd been there for about 16 years in different sort of roles all the way through it. Mm -hmm. um, we had just won the much more music license. Uh, we just spent a, you know, a year putting it together with, and it was very under-resourced, right? As you know, we would like steal cameras from here and people from there and plug in over there while nobody was using that outlet. Like we really were putting it together with a like with a ball of twine and some chewing gum which is what how much music itself started it, exactly right it did back in the day <laughs> oh no for sure they um yeah you know i remember in the new music going in and and you know saying i'm going to interview i need an interview because or some tape and they'd say well when we were at a tape the tape budget was gone they'd say well <laughs> tape and tape over it and I'm looking at like a David Bowie interview and going, I can't tape over a David Bowie interview. But yeah, it was resource poor. And so hmm. when you're resource poor, um, yeah, you, you become very creative. That's for sure. And we used to make, you know, the fact that we had no money a virtue. 
um, as best we could. But we just launched much more music with, you know, the ball of twine and the chewing gum. And we had just been to the CRTC and had been awarded um, uh, like seven new music stations. And I had worked so hard with all of the folks uh, launching much more music. It, it was a many a multi-year battle to get to win the license and then to get it up. And I thought, Chum is growing at too big a pace and hasn't built some foundational infrastructure. You know, we had 700 employees in that building at the time, um, expanding internationally, expanding across the country, city TV, much music, et cetera, all these digital channels. We had one HR person for 700 employees. You know, I could fire somebody at much music and they'd show up working for space the next day. Um, so I really didn't imagine how I could launch, you know, a, a, a bouquet of new music stations with no money in, uh, uh, in that rarefied air. Um, and then the offer came from Sony and it was a big offer and big money. And I was really interested in starting to work with artists from the ground up because signing new artists, um, taking Canadian artists, being a part of, you know, taking their careers internationally, because when videos arrived at Much Music, the artist was in many cases almost fully formed, right? If they were big enough, they'd already been signed. They had a video. They were kind of, they were sort of in their mid-creative um, mid life. Um, I wanted to start with artists at the very beginning, and they paid me a lot of money. So, okay. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting. When you ended up at Sony, it was right at the time of uh, a big uh, transition in the music industry. And I re I've recently read a book um, by the founder of Pixar. It's called Creativity Inc. Oh yeah. And right. he, he was talking about how um, businesses who are at the top of their game can never rest on their laurels because there are always upstarts, new industries that are gonna start eating away at their uh, audience share or their their um, their finances or their growth in some case. And then one day you'll wake up and your business will be gone. And to me, that was, that's what innovation is for. And it's what record companies were not doing back in the day when Napster had started and streaming had started. And the record executives for some I don't even know why, but maybe because they were men, they just they just said, we own the power, we own the music business, and nothing can topple it. Yeah. And then you walked in just as the music industry was completely crumbling. Yeah, it was. What'd you, what'd you do? Terrible timing. Um, I walked in you know, right at the beginning of Napster. I was literally at the the new building for, um, well, I started December 3rd. So the one of the first emails I ever got from corporate in New York was, there will be no artist Christmas presents this year because the business had started to crumble. So I walked in right at the beginning of, an, of, a, of a global collapse of the music industry. Um, so, and I was a newbie. I didn't know how the record companies worked. 
Um, also, the culture of, of uh, Sony was like culture of fear at the time. Um, it, so they, I needed to heal the culture. And I also needed to um, motivate um, the staff to be able to sort of greet this new um, insanity that was Napster. You know, not just Napster, Morpheus. There, were, there was like tons of the illegal file right. sharing services. And he was a disruptive little Dickens Napster. And he liked to, you know, share free movies with his, or music with his friends. And um, also Canada. So I reported internationally. I was the only female president running a country in the Sony empire. So I would go to my meetings with, you know, surrounded by 24 other countries, Latin America, Germany, Australia, France, everybody, the only woman and a rookie and the business is collapsing. So it was a, it was a very difficult trying time. Um, but I had to find my, I mean, there were times I would drive to the office just just thinking like, oh, my God, what have I done? What if I'm, you know, too new to help them? What are what's the information that I'm missing to be able to reinvent this business? Um, and but by the time I parked my car and had a little talking to myself, you know, I had to be ready to stride through the front doors, uh, you know, statesmanlike and full of optimism. And and so I engaged my people. You know, we had presidents uh, breakfast meetings constantly where I would show them the numbers. And it wasn't just the people um, who you would normally associate with a record company, the manufacturing distribution marketing teams. We had, um, we had a CD line and a DVD line. We had a shipping department in the back. We had a printing warehouse. We, so we were very blue collar, I guess you'd call it, as well as mm -hmm. um, the front of the office. So I, did, I put together these groups called uh, the Sony Big Thinkers. Anybody could be in it. Um, you had a special hat <laughs> to be in these meetings where we would try and reinvent the business. So it was, as you say, too, um, you know, the music business can be accused of, you know, dinosaurs head in the sand trying to, um, you know, legally uh, sue their way out of it. They were playing whack-a-mole with Napster and Morpheus and all of the, you know, illegal file sharing things that were happening. And they weren't embracing the innovation um, with the the bigger um, that they really needed. So my boss, because I reported internationally, he said, you know what, Denise? He said, you're, you're kind of under the radar in Canada. You R&D your head off. And so that's what we did um, with these big thinker meetings because a good idea can come from anywhere. I got, uh, yeah, lots of good ideas from people that weren't the vice presidents of the company by any stretch. Um, and we started to reinvent. Um, and, you know, ringtones and, and web. I mean, Celine uh, let us um, put together her uh, web um, site for her. She was in Vegas at the time. So we were suddenly shipping all her merchandise. I mean, Celine, she, she put a name on anything. There's like mantle clocks going to Uganda and shower curtains. And, you know, we're just trying to do some value add stuff and, and figure it out. So, the, the way I kept my um, 
because I wasn't confident, but the way I kept my motivation as a leader who needed to show, you know, some uh, leadership to, uh, to the troops was understanding that I didn't know everything, ask for help, ask the questions that might be seen to be stupid and not give a shit if people thought you were stupid. Um, Those seem to be very sort of female qualities. I, I can't imagine hearing a man saying that. Wow. And that is not an insult to me. That is the power of female leadership. We well, lead yeah. differently. I think that if you look at, you know, if you made a word cloud of leadership attributes um, today versus what those same words would have been 20 years ago, I mean, now you get, it's words like transparency and accountability and honesty and trust and empathy. And, you know, they're, they're the important words because that's how you get people, you know, motivated to do their best for the company uh, where they are. And if you've got the best people working for you and you don't give them that kind of respect and transparency, then they're, they're going to march out the door and go somewhere else. So it's, it's, it's good leadership. Um, and I also felt that what I didn't know perhaps um, might be compensated by the idea that um, I was new. So I had this 6,000 foot look at how the business ran, why it ran the way it did, um, the things that could perhaps be uh, improved. Um, so I tried to compensate my lack of experience with my ability to uh, be open to transformation. And that's exactly what the industry needed at the time. It took 20 years for that business to recover, 20 years. Yeah. You left way before that, though. So what got you out of Sony? Well, it, there was a merger. So I was spending a lot of time, you know, uh, with, in, with Heritage, figuring out <clears throat> BMG and Sony were, were merging as a company because the industry was going down the toilet everywhere. People were trying to figure out, you know, how do we shore it up? How do we, are there mergers or acquisitions or things that we can do to, to help the, the bottom line of the company? So the BMG Sony merger was going on. We thought Sony was in the driver's seat, but it, <laughs> the more uh, we looked at it, the more it looked like BMG was in the driver's seat for a while they wanted me to sell the building. I did not want to sell the building. Um, but they'd already taken the hit to the bottom line. Um, I knew that the cost would, we did everything in that building. We made videos, we did performances, we manufactured and distributed. So they wanted us to sell it and, um, and leave. Um, and there was no upside for the Canadian company in that plan. And so I fought against it um, for all the right reasons in terms of the bottom line for the company. Um, and at the end of the day, I think I ruffled some feathers and the new head of international. So my boss got fired, his boss, his boss, his boss. It was just a, the clock was ticking. So, and um, I, I remembered one of the new bosses came in and one of the first thing he said to me was, I hear you have a problem with authority. And I said, cause I was pushing back on the, on the sale of the building. And I said, well, I have no problem with authority as long as I respect it. And, you know, the good news Boom. was, I know, the good news was, oh, he didn't take that very well. 
was that they just re-upped my contract two months ago. So they, I got a big check and I knew that. And I also, you know, they had to pay my contract out. So as I looked around and I saw what was going on in the business, I knew that I couldn't protect my artists or the staff more than I'd already done. Um, and that made me sad. And so I thought, you know, you need someone who is not me because I will fight some of these decisions and, uh, and it will end in tears for everyone. So. Yeah. You also had other important things to do, like get the order of Canada. So you, um, you had to leave obviously. I was very busy and then, awards. You're very busy <laughs> with all these awards. And then the next thing I hear is, um, you're at CBC running radio, but I, I just want to go again in between those two sort of high points in your life is the shit in between. Um, it's hard when the things that you work on, when I say fail, I don't mean you failed, Denise. I mean that the effort failed because Sony uh, didn't succeed in the end. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Not due to your lack of leadership, obviously. Um, but it's public. Yeah. Everybody knows that you were let go. Actually, I didn't know, but now I know. So I'm assuming everybody knew that you were let go. Uh, how do you keep that? Um, how do you keep going? Uh, how do you talk to yourself? How do you deal with that? The pressure, um, the humiliation, the shame, not that you experienced those, but those I are did. the potential emotions. Yeah, of course you do. I mean, and one thing I fought against and why I feel like people say, oh, you're very ambitious, you're very driven. No, I was just fighting my imposter syndrome demon the whole time because it doesn't matter, you know, the Order of Canada or, you know, other awards that you've listed, which are lovely, lovely. But the this imposter syndrome, um, I call him a him and a demon. He lives in my fanny pack. Um, and he, it doesn't matter, you know, what sort of heights or, or accolades you're receiving. Um, he's always waiting behind the podium to sort of come out and trip you. That little voice that says, you know, they're all going to find out you've been faking it all along. You're going to fail. They're going to know that you really didn't know what you're doing. So that voice is very, very difficult to find a place to put it so it shuts up um my mo for that was always to be um to be over researched to be very busy uh, to be very i would prepare so hard for any eventuality so that even if i did fail at it um uh, or if, if it if it actually happened then i would have already sort of been through it in my head figured out um, you know, what I was going to do about it. So I was ready. Um, so yeah, when you um, are suddenly with titleless is really the thing, right? Because it wasn't a money issue. Um, you know, and, and people were people knew what was going on in the business, you know, there was a lot people we were crying, it was, it was an, an amazing outpouring of emotion and fidelity. Um, Sony, you know, New York said, you know, we want to throw you a freedom party. And I'm like, no, no, you've done enough. I got the check, <laughs> so it was fine. but I had a party anyway. Um, 
But yeah, it is hard because suddenly, you know, people don't answer your phone calls immediately. Sometimes it takes a, a day to get, you know, an email or a week, an email returned. The things that you were used to doing suddenly aren't there. And if you're a successful businesswoman and you are uh, known by your title and your position, that is a really difficult thing to try and figure out who you are without it. Um, so yeah, you go to ground a bit and you know, you make a lot, I made a lot of lists, you know, all of the things that I never had time to do before. Now I've got time to do, I'm going to read, I'm going to learn to cook and clean out the basement, you know, I'm going to sweep the forest. Um, but sooner or later you have to figure out, you know, what makes you happy and then try and ensure that the next opportunity that you create for yourself or that comes looking for you will um, meet those, um, you know, boxes that you've laid out for yourself that are the way to find joy. So they, you need some introspection. So the, you ended up, there's two things that I want to talk to you about. You ended up doing a show with Conrad Black, Denise. <laughs> yeah, I know. What the actual hell? Can you, like, <laughs> I, I didn't even know that you had done this and I'm just shocked. I know. So tell me, you, you did that with Moses, right? Because it was with the Zoomer I did. network. It was, the Zoomer. it was the flagship Zoomer show. I had just actually accepted another job, which I was, I should have taken, but I didn't. Because um, Moses appealed to my ego, which wasn't on the list of things that make you happy. Um, but I always liked being, um, I hated being on air. I hated being having the camera and me. I never watched myself. I hated that, but I really. And loved so you decided to do a show. Yes. Well, mostly <laughs> because um, it was going to be a show with a lot of smart people and um, on topics and ideas that I thought were really important for Canada. I did not know Conrad was going to be the host. Uh, Moses sent me a little paragraph about what his idea for the show was. And I sat down at my kitchen table and I thought, okay, I'm going to do what we call the perfect show. Like based on these parameters, who would be the guest? What would be the length of segment? What would be the variety in the show? Bumpers, you know, ads, whatever. I built a show right down to the second. And then I thought, wow, that was fun. So then I built four shows right down to the second and plotted out if it was a daily show, what it would look like. And thought, this is great. I would love a show like this. And then I took it into Moses. Moses cartwheeled down the hall. He said, I'm going to, you know, cost it out. We'll get back to you. We had talked about co-hosts. We had talked about Jan Arden and Mary Walsh. Um, wow. I know. That would have been amazing. Fun. And then, uh, well, unbeknownst to both of those wonderful women. Um, and then... Um, I heard nothing for a long time and I went about my life and suddenly Moses called and he said, we're going to do the show. It's not going to be a daily. It's going to be weekly. And I want you to come in and meet your co-host. And I said, well, who's that? And he said, well, I, I want to show you when you get here. And so I was like, yeah, okay. It's a surprise. So I walked in and Conrad Black is standing there. And I was like, whoa, okay. And I really had to think about it because he was all over the news and he just, he'd been in jail. He had returned back to Canada. He, you know, comported himself very well in jail as we understand, helped fellow inmates. Um, 
And I really did believe that, you know, Canada is a world of, uh, or should be a place of second chances, right? Where if you've done your time um, for whatever you were found guilty of, and you want to reinvent yourself in another way, that you should be given the option to do that. Um, I went out and grabbed a copy of one of his books. There were crazy words in it, like Fissiparis on the second page. And I had a chat with Marie about it my husband. And um, basically, I thought, well, I'm never going to match him in terms of his IQ, because he's off the charts smart. But maybe I can balance him with some EQ. And maybe, um, you know, we can have some interesting conversations. As Barack Obama always said, or came to say later, um, just because we disagree doesn't mean we have to be disagreeable. So off we went. Um, and we did a whole season. Um, and I left um, not because of Conrad, but because um, Moses would not um, give me final edit on the shows. So, and Moses was a very different person from whom I'd known uh, back in the day. Um, and we did not agree often editorially. Um, he famous, I mean, I wrote it in the book, so it's no big deal, which has been lawyered. <laughs> which said, you know, I don't make a fetish out of journalistic balance, he said. And I was like, well, I do. And my face is on the show. So I handed in the last show with a resignation letter. Um, and that was that. Wow. I was just too old not to be, you know, I'm too old not to be true to what my own beliefs are. And they weren't the same as Moses's and it was his station. So, you know, off you go, float your boat. Um, but I can't be standing in front of this show when I, when I, there are editorial choices I would not have made. Denise, I, I, I cannot let you go without bringing up the cowboy junkies. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, because if the listeners do not love you enough at this point of a conversation. I'd love for you to tell, tell everybody what happened on that famous <laughs> evening when you interviewed the Cowboy Junkies. It was, thank you. And thank you for your kind words, Erica. Really, you're making my heart sing. Thank you. So we'll leave you with this story. The cowboy, I was very pregnant. I was due a week from the Cowboy Junkies show. It was a live intimate and interactive on Much Music. Um, I arrived at the station at quarter to nine. The show was live coast to coast at nine o'clock. It was a 90 minute show. So as I walked across the, uh, oh, through the front doors at the city TV building, my water broke. And I walked up to see Nancy Oliver because I was like, we're 10 minutes away from showtime. Um, and I said, you know, I think, and I'm not sure. And she says, yeah, it sounds like your water broke. And she said, but can you still do the show? Because I don't have anybody else to do the show. And I was like, well, I just spent $40 having my face made up because I was so big and heavy. I was dressed in this massive black shroud to try to uh, cover up my very pregnant body. And my doctor had said, well, it's your first baby. So, you know, once your contractions start, you should just stay busy because it could take 24 hours or more. So I thought, yeah, okay, I'll do the show. So I went over, they put me behind the grand piano to hide me. 
because there was a pretty bad uh, example of what happens to the young people when you don't practice safe sex. <laughs> Very scary. And then the cowboy junkies started to play. And I was in contractions within about 15 minutes. And, you know, it, it couldn't have been Metallica. It couldn't have been a really loud band. It had to be, you know, Margo, sweet Jay, right? And I was like, <laughs> and the show went on and the show went on and the makeup woman, she'd come over and she'd pat me. She'd go, God, you're sweating. And I go, I'm in labor. And she'd go, yeah, right. <laughs> Walk away. And it was at the point where my, wa- my hands, my wrists were so big that I didn't have a watch on anymore because it wouldn't fit around my wrist. So I was literally timing my contractions by the rundown. So it would say, Cowboy Junkie song, Black Eyed Man, three minutes, 36, one minute promo, two minute commercial break, one minute take. So I was like, well, I'm about eight, nine minutes apart at this point. Um, anyway, long story short, finished the show, went immediately to the hospital, had a baby. Um, and I always remember, you know, cause I still had full TV makeup on and, you know, false eyelashes looking down at Duncan and he must have looked up at me because I had some mascara for days, right? Thinking, my mother is Tammy Faye Baker. Like, look at her. She's a disaster. Anyway, the next day I got a beautiful bouquet of flowers from the Cowboy Junkies and a note that said, thanks for waiting. And uh, that was the story. So Amazing. Yeah. Amazing story. The next day. It was crazy. You are uh, quite an amazing woman, Denise, and I would like to talk to you for another hour, but I think you have other things to, uh, to do. Can you tell me, sorry, what are you working on now? Well, I'm on five nonprofit boards. So right now with COVID and the pandemic, we're helping everybody try and stay afloat. So there's a lot of fiscal responsibility dealing going on. Um, and I had a big project in America that got canceled, um, which I'm not able to talk about because hopefully we will re-ignite um, it. Um, but it requires a mass gathering of people. So it is, it is on pause for the moment, but it's cause-oriented and it's something, I mean, I think, you know, I choose to do things that make a contribution. Now it's really important to me more than ever. Um, and yeah, just trying to find the joy. Well, it was a joy talking to you. Thank you so much. And uh, for those of you who are listening right now, I would love for you to be a part of the show as well. I've set up a phone line for anyone who's listening for you to call in. And uh, basically you'll call me and you can record a message that will be played on the show. Uh, The phone number is 833-972-7272. And you could... You know, leave a comment about this particular show. You can let me know what you think about the premise of the show or a particular moment in much music history that has meant so much to you. Perhaps there's someone that I have not yet interviewed that you would like to have on the show. Or you can ask a question, a burning question that you've always wanted to ask anyone from much music. Certainly you can leave that on the voice message, 833-972-7272. Or if you're not a phone person, don't want to leave a voice message, you can find me on social media. And I am everywhere. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. There's an Erica M. Facebook page. Um, Just reach out to me and uh, you can leave your question or comment there. Uh, Most importantly, though, I would love 
if you enjoyed today's show, to click subscribe so you never miss an episode. Again, thank you so much to Denise Donlin for giving me so much of your time and your heart. I will see all of you next week with another episode of Reinvention of the VJ. Here's to living a life filled with music, meaning, and many reinventions. Thanks for listening. Follow Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Subscribe and follow more episodes. Click to reinventionofthevj.com. Podcast produced in collaboration with Steve Anthony Productions. Editing and coordination of Flalo Communications, Inc. Copyright 2020. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.